time for us to move into our sermon. And the sermon series that we're going through is called Kingdom Craft. And the idea behind this sermon series is that we are going through this emphasis on loving our neighbors and the important role that that plays in the message of the Bible and the mission of the church. And we're talking about how loving your neighbor is the primary way that God calls us to change the world around us. So the way we have been programmed, the way we are taught in our culture, is that you change the world through statecraft. Statecraft is the term for using the power of the state to change the world around you. This is what they taught you in civics class, right? Something's going wrong, something should be changed, so your first thought is there ought to be a law. You go to your legislator, your legislator writes a bill, the bill sits on the steps of Capitol Hill and sings a song about I'm just a bill, and then it becomes a law, right? That's how we solve problems. Or there's an issue, you go to the authorities because we use the state to solve problems. That is how we're programmed to think. And so then as Christians, we want to be responsible with how we participate in statecraft because we have the right to vote and we have the responsibility that goes along with that. We go to the Bible and the Bible doesn't really seem to clearly speak to that, mainly because it wouldn't be, when the last book of the Bible was written, it would be like 1800 years before there were any Christian populations that had the right to vote and really had like where regular Christians had influence on the government anyway. So it doesn't really talk about how we practice statecraft. So when we try and get answers from the Bible about how to practice statecraft, we end up with a whole bunch of different answers, and nobody can really agree on what it means, how Christians should participate in changing the world. And what I've been arguing in the last few weeks is that that's because the Bible doesn't, agree, doesn't want us to look primarily at changing the world through statecraft. The Bible has a different approach, that when you say the world should be different, you don't turn to the state first, you turn to the kingdom. You turn to God. You turn to what he has taught us and the way he wants to change the world. And that's why we're calling it kingdom craft as an alternative to statecraft. Because when you talk about politics, we tend to think statecraft and politics are the same thing. But really, politics is the art of shaping the world around us. And there are a lot of different ways that we shape the world around us. A lot of different groups and organizations and societies that do that. You've got the government. You've also got churches. You've got banks. You've got fraternal organizations. You've got corporations, you've got social media, you've got all kinds of groups that shape the world around us. And the question is, where do we turn in order to change things? So three weeks ago when we started this series, we started by looking at the origin or how this all started in humanity, how we started trying to shape the world around us. So we found that human beings are prone to a mindset that I've been calling anxiety. We are worried that there isn't enough to go around, or there may not be enough to go around, or I may not get what I want out of the world, and therefore, we need to take control of the world. We need to use power and force to make sure that I'm protected, that I get what I want, that everything goes the right way. This is why Cain built the first city. He was afraid of getting murdered. And this is why the Babylonians built the first tower, why they built the second city, the Tower of Babylon. This was the mentality, and it's also the mentality in our founding documents as a, as a country. Our political philosophy is that if you don't have governments, the world is terrible, and so governments protect our rights. They set everything in order, right? And that's, that's, how, that's what we need to do. And then we looked at the Bible's perspective, and we realized that the Bible does not actually agree with that logic. The Bible does not agree that the problem is there isn't enough for us. The Bible actually argues from the very beginning that God provides for us. And so the problem isn't what we think it is, that the problem isn't with the supply in the world. The problem is with our attitude, that we don't trust God's providence. Because God 
gave, God created the world good. He created it sufficient to sustain us. When Cain built a city to protect himself, it was right after God gave him the mark that was a promise of protection. When they built the Tower of Babylon, it was right after God told Noah and his family that they would have the entire earth for them and it would feed them and it would sustain them as they spread out through the world. So what actually happens, it's not that, that the world won't sustain us. It's not that, that God made a world that's insufficient for us that we need to improve. The problem is that we just don't trust what God is doing in the world. And that mistrust of what God is doing in the world is how we human beings create the problems in our society. We are the problem, not the good world that God created. Remember we talked about the toilet paper shortage? How during COVID, like this toilet paper was one of the most secure supply chains we had. The reason we had the shortage was not because of a problem with the toilet paper or the toilet paper manufacturing process. It was because people panicked and they decided to panic by toilet paper and then some people missed out. Like that we create these problems. And so then two weeks ago, we looked at the law of Moses because what happened is God called the people of Israel to be a group of people who could demonstrate to the world that God's grace could be trusted. And so the law of Moses required them to go without some of the things that we human beings rely on to make us feel like we're in control of the world. The law of Moses had no army. It had no standing army. It had no central power. There was no, no king. And then when, before there was a king, there was no, no one in charge of the kingdom. He didn't set anyone in charge. They just had judges and priests and elders, but no, one, no central authority. And then their economy was continually shutting down at the slightest hint of a holiday. Right? As anything they want to, any, the drop of a hat, they will shut the entire economy down. Because, and the point is, they can afford to do that because God takes care of them. They can shut the economy down for a year and just eat the crops that grow on their own because God said, I will take care of you during that time. But this wasn't just God doting on one particular kingdom because he then taught them through the law of Moses that they were supposed to share his generosity with others. Right? So they were legally obligated. You, you couldn't take Sabbath off, but make your servants work or your employees. You had to share Sabbath with everyone in your community. Everybody got the day off. And you were required by law to forgive debts, to free slaves, to give back land that had been bought. There was this enforced generosity where people had to give back to others and had to provide for others and because they could trust that when God was taking care of them, that would give them enough to share with others. Then last week, we looked at Israel's history of actually trusting in that plan, and we found it was not very good. They started out by making small compromises, mainly because they either didn't trust God to give them enough, or they didn't trust that what God had given them was enough. Because that's the thing about God's grace. God's grace doesn't mean that he's going to give you everything you want, it means he's going to give you enough for his plan. And so Israelites started to find, you know, I actually want a little bit more than what God has given me. And I hear that if I, if I kill a goat for that God over there, he'll owe me one and he'll give me great, more crops. So I'm going to start worshiping these gods. And then that got them into trouble. And so they started turning to political power. They demanded a king. But then bringing in kings meant that they started centralizing authority in, the, in the Jerusalem, and the kings ended up leading them on this very destructive path of, because the kings then became anxious about holding on to power, and they became fearful in their mindset. And you end up with Solomon enslaving his fellow Israelites, maintaining his power with alliances to other kingdoms through marriage instead of his loyalty to God, 
And eventually the whole kingdom crumbles because they're not actually trusting in God. And they're doing a very poor job of demonstrating God's grace to the world. Now God forgives them and he brings them back to the land. But even when they come back, they've learned the wrong lesson because they come back blaming others. And basically saying, all right, fine, we're going to make a holy huddle community here. We're not going to let anybody participate. We're going to kick everybody out because it's trust. it was the Gentiles that got us into this mess. So we're not going to do anything with them. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, you've got this community that is hopelessly fractured and fearful and distrustful and, and is, is neurotic about controlling every little thing so they can make sure that, they'll be, that God will restore them. That's that mentality that the Sadducees had their version of it, the Pharisees had their version of it, of, of we need to control things so we can make sure that everything goes according to our plan. And this is the realm that Jesus steps into as he begins to preach. Now, last week, we covered a huge chunk of the, um, the majority of the Old Testament, right? Today, I actually want to key in on one main passage, and it's in the Gospel of John, it's when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire. And it's in chapter 18. And here's the conversation that happens. Pilate then went back to inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That passage contains a really mind-bending message for us as we look at how God calls us to change the world around us. And it starts with this recognition. And, and I'm sure if you've listened to me preaching long enough, you've heard me say this many times, but I think it's important because at least for me, it is so different from the way I thought of things before. First of all, Jesus' mission was to establish the kingdom of God. Okay? That was the core of his message. We would typically today summarize the gospel. If you ask most people, summarize the gospel in one verse, they would pick John 3.16. That is not how the gospel writers would have summarized the message of Jesus because we have the way they summarize the message of Jesus and they summarized it this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, as Jesus traveled from town to town, he would have different interactions with people in each place, but one of the things he said in every place he went was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay? And we, so not only it was important enough that that was something he said everywhere he went, and when the gospel writers wanted to summarize his preaching in one sentence, they picked that sentence. And it was also so important that that's the reason they killed him. Right? When they crucified him, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So this idea of the kingdom of God and of Jesus being a king is a core not only to how Jesus saw himself and how Jesus presented his message, but also to how others saw him. And it was it's important enough that that's the reason they killed him. So we can't get away from this kingdom message in the preaching of Jesus. But, so what we typically do is we change, we think about it metaphorically. So let me give you a visual of this. Here is a city. There's a diagram. And what we typically do is we will divide this into heaven and earth. And then we'll say the kingdom of God is in heaven and the earthly kingdoms are on earth. 
And so when Jesus talks about a kingdom, he's talking about a spiritual, heavenly kingdom in the sweet by and by. And so getting into the kingdom of heaven means getting into the good place when you die. And when he says the kingdom of heaven has come near, he's saying, you know, the way to heaven, the way to go to the good place when you die is close. Right? And so the kingdom of heaven is heaven. It's this other place. And Jesus is talking about that kingdom. So on this planet, we deal with the kingdoms of the earth. And then someday we're going to go to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That's how we often think about it. The problem is, that's not how Jesus preached. When Jesus preached, he talked about this worldly stuff. So, for instance, the first thing you might notice is if we take an itinerary of the main topics of the first chapter and a half or so of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at the things that he talks about. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, which are the main reference there is oaths that you take in court. Resisting oppression, loving enemies, giving to charity, how you invest your money. Those are all very this-worldly. Right? They are very much about what happens in this world. And most of those are when he's responding specifically to, uh, most of those are when he's responding specifically to the law of Moses, which as we talked about two weeks ago, the law of Moses was a law for running a country. And so Jesus is responding to a law for running the country. Another thing that pokes a bit of a hole in that mentality is the fact that when you study, when scholars study the language of the, of the time period in which Jesus lived, what they discover is that a lot of Jesus' main terms that he used would have been heard as political, political terms by his audience. They would have been heard as terms that were not referring to my individual fate, but to the fate of the kingdom of Israel. So, kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven... That was, they, that was their understanding of God returning to earth to reign on earth. And, you know, because God reigns from a city. He reigns from Zion in the Psalms, right? It's, he reigns in Jerusalem. So when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about something happening on earth. That's what they would have heard. The gospel or the good news, every time that comes up in the Old Testament, it is in reference to a victory of a battle between kings. Now, sometimes the king is God, but he's defeating the military enemies of Israel. So the gospel was a, 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 it was a, the good news was news that God had defeated the enemy of his people. Repent and believe. I've done this a few times with you. I've showed you a passage in Josephus. Josephus was a historian who was a general in the Jewish revolt. And he tells this guy, an assassin that was sent to kill him, if you repent and believe in me, then I'll spare you. What repent and believe in me means is switch sides and obey me, follow my cause. That's how you told people, leave your army and join my army. And even forgiveness of sins. If you look in the Old Testament, the prophets, when they talk about forgiveness of sins, they talk about the forgiveness of Israel's sins, the people's sins, which was a prerequisite before God would restore the people. So Jesus did not come to save persons of God. He came to restore the people of God. You go through the Sermon on the Mount. One of the worst things about English is that we don't have a plural second person pronoun. It's all you. And so it obscures some things. If we used y'all, I think we should use y'all. The the Sermon on the Mount is full of y'alls. Y'all are 
the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Y'all should do, like, it's all about what the people of God should do. So it's not just about personal piety. It's about how the community of God's people needs to change to be a faithful community like what God called Israel to be in the first place at Mount Sinai. It's about how we live together as a community. And even when you get to a passage like when Jesus tells his people not to worry, and that seems like it's just a matter of, of, posit- of personal behavior, positive thinking. But remember what we've been talking about, how anxiety, worry is at the core of so much of what we do as a community, as a culture. It drives so much of our motivation in how we react to other people. Anxiety is a huge driving force in our, in our psychology and in our politics and in our communities. And so that's what Jesus is speaking to something huge, this huge dynamic that drives our cultures when he says, Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, what we sometimes hear in that is he's saying, well, don't focus on the here and now stuff. Focus on the eternal stuff, and God will take care of the here and now. But what I'm telling you is that he's saying the kingdom of God is more here and now than what you're going to eat tomorrow. He's saying that the... Focusing on what you're going to eat tomorrow, that's where you're getting too far ahead of yourself. The kingdom is here right now. And what will often happen to us is we will do things that, in, that poorly represent the kingdom of heaven now because we're worried about what we're going to eat tomorrow. Right? We get focused on the worry about things we can't control, and so we forget about the kingdom issues that are right in front of us right now. He's not saying don't focus on the here and now, focus on the hereafter. He's, fo- he's saying focus on what is really here and now, which is seeking the kingdom right now in this situation, in whatever you're facing. And don't be motivated by the worry about tomorrow. Build the kingdom today. So the kingdom that Jesus announced was not a spiritual or heavenly kingdom. It was a real kingdom in the here and now. Now, it is also spiritual and it is also heavenly. But it is not something about the hereafter and it's not just something that takes place in some other realm. It is absolutely about the here and now. But this is where things get sticky. Because how do we relate the kingdom in the here and now the earthly kingdoms, right? Now we're starting to jockey for space. And this is where people get nervous because we, you know, we have separation of church and state. And one of the things we're taught in our history classes is that terrible things happen when the, gov- when the church muddles in the government's business, okay? I believe in the separation of church and state because I think it's good for the church. And actually history and, and statistics have shown that the church flourishes the more separate it is from the government. But I also want to be clear about what the problem is, what, what, what is the line that the church shouldn't cross, okay? First of all, we need to understand what is unique about the government. Okay? Like I said before, there are lots and lots of political communities out there, lots of communities that are responsible for shaping our lives and our culture. So you've got the government, you've got the church, you've got banks, you've got fraternal organizations, you've got uh, you know, medical institutions, you've got corporations, you've got um, social media, the, you know, regular media, all those kinds of organizations. What is different between all of these groups that have political influence and the state? What makes the state unique? Any thoughts? 
why do you obey the government in a way that's different from every other organization? Why do you obey the government different than you obey Apple or Google? Apple doesn't have guns. So there was a, a very influential sociologist named Max Weber about 100 years ago uh, gave a lecture that was very influential called Politics as a Vocation. And here's how he defined the state. Now this is um, the modern type of government that we've had for about 300 years. A state is a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. That's what makes the government different. That's why the government has more authority than everybody else. Because the government, we have decided as a society that the government will get to decide who gets to use force and when. Now, of course, we have things like the Second Amendment, but notice the government, it has, that Second Amendment is in a government document. Right? So the government is where we've given the right to control force. So ultimately, the government has control, has authority over life and death, in a way. Like they, they, are, they, either are, they are the only ones who are allowed to take life, to imprison people, or to delegate that authority. And so ultimately, no matter what your interaction is with the state, the, reason, the ultimate reason why we, have to, why we obey the government in a way different from everybody else is because if you push it far enough, you will get a barrel in your face, right? Whether it's something as innocuous as paying your taxes or stopping at getting stopped for a, a speeding ticket or anything like that. Like, we, we don't push it that way. We try not to push it that far, right? We try to just avoid that. But ultimately, that's why it will come down to that if you push it far enough. If you disobey the government long enough, eventually someone with a barrel will force you to do what they're saying or put you in prison or something, right? That's what makes the government different. That's just, and, and that's what we've been talking about all throughout is that governments, and even in the Bible it says, right, that the, the king, they, have the, they are given the sword, right, the power to uh, keep, to enforce the law. And we've talked about how that does serve a genuine purpose because that's one way to restrain sin and the effects of anxiety and sin in the world. What it will not do is cure it. Right? You remember that distinction? So it's good that the government will restrain evil in the world and restrain our anxiety, but it, we're, we can never look to that force to, to cure it. And it's interesting, recognizing that that is what defines a government, how does Jesus distinguish his kingdom? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. How is his kingdom different? His disciples didn't fight. He didn't use force. He's not building his kingdom on coercive power, on the ability to say, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to put a barrel in your face or a sword against your throat and make you do it. That's the difference. Now, this is something I had known for a while, but then it was actually preparing for this sermon that something finally clicked for me. I had kind of a, a light bulb moment, okay? So, because the question is, if it's not built on coercive power, what power does Jesus bring to bear? And the first thought is, well, the power of love or the power of sacrifice. Or God, Jesus brings some other kind of power that is able to overwhelm even the power of violence. But that's not what he says. Notice what, the rest of the conversation. Or sorry, let me clarify one other thing. Notice he doesn't say my kingdom is not in this world. He says my kingdom is not from this world. 
So the difference between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world is not where they are. It's the kind of power they use. That's the difference. It's not location. It's means and methods. Okay? So Pilate says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Notice, Jesus did not come to bring some alternative power to bear on the power of the state, on the power of governments. He's not, he's not here to defeat them with, some, with the power of love. He's not going around putting daisies in barrels. Right? That's not, but he doesn't bring any power at all. What does he do? He testifies to the truth. He's testifying to the truth that God is gracious, and he always has been, and that has never been in question. That has never been challenged. That has never been threatened. In a way, okay, so in most ways, the death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. But in one way, it wasn't meant to change anything. It was meant to testify to a fact that has never been any other way. It has always been true that God has been gracious and his grace has been sufficient. And so Jesus doesn't need to bring any power to bear. He doesn't need to bring in, introduce anything new into the world. He simply needs to testify to the fact that God's grace has always been here. It's not the world that's the problem, it's us. Because we refuse God's grace. We refuse to trust in him, and we think that we have to turn to all these other forces, all these other powers to change things. We get afraid, we get nervous, we get anxious, and we try and take control. And what God is saying is, if you would trust me, I am enough. And you know what? The world has never been out of my control. Right? I have always been enough. The, the problem is just that we won't participate in it. We won't accept it. And so ultimately, Jesus comes to testify to a kingdom that is built on God's grace, which means it doesn't need to conquer anything. It doesn't need to defeat anyone because no, the Roman Empire never was able to threaten the grace of God. Right? They tried their best when they killed Jesus. And Jesus didn't have to fight back because they did everything they could to him and it didn't work. So the kingdom of God is different, not because it's in a different place, but because it's founded on God's grace, not on human violence. So rather than looking at the world this way, with the kingdom of God somewhere we go when we die, we should look at the kingdom of God this way. It's as much on earth as any other kingdom. We don't have time in this sermon to go into it, but there's also, there's a whole lot of religious observance that goes into our politics. So they both have both dimensions. But notice, there is a wall of separation. I will say there's a wall of separation, but that wall does not separate the church from getting involved in political things. It should separate the church from doing things by the way that the government does things, the way that by using power, violence, force, Right? It's a, the wall is between the church and the methods that the world uses. The church should absolutely be involved in changing the world around us. We should absolutely be involved in changing the circumstances of people's lives. We should absolutely be involved in loving others and helping others. I'll give you a great example of this. I've mentioned this several times, but every time there's a natural disaster in our country, the church outgives the federal government in aid. Right? Instead of saying, oh, let's go to the state to fix these problems, we just get involved because we're not waiting for anyone's permission. We're just going to help people. 
And it makes a huge difference. That's the church just being the church and helping people. And we believe that those methods work. We be, what we have to do is just to be the people of God, to receive God's grace, and to share his grace with others. And that will transform the world. And you know what? It has been. For 2,000 years, it has been. And it will continue to do so. We're going to talk more about that next week, in next week's sermon, about the history of how loving your neighbor has been the most powerful force for good in human history. Is absolutely, I mean, just completely transformed the world in ways you don't recognize. But ultimately... We don't need to reach into the, the worldly bag of tricks to pursue the kingdom of God. The difference is in the methods we use. And the methods that we use are non-anxious. They trust in God. They trust in his grace. And they're generous with others. And you can see this in the ministry of Jesus because that is the temptation we always face. And Jesus faced it too. The temptation as Christians to start reaching into the, earth's, to the earthly kingdom's bag of tricks. Right? And Jesus resisted every effort to turn his kingdom into a kingdom of power and violence. This happened multiple times. So the first one is in the temptation of Jesus. Satan, uh, he's tempted three times, and in the Gospel of Matthew, the last temptation is when he takes, Satan takes Jesus up on a hill and shows him all the kings and says, hey, bow down and worship me, and all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And what Satan is doing there is he's saying, okay, you know, I know God has this whole plan for you, but that's going to be really hard, and maybe it won't work. So if you'll just worship me, if you'll just give in to the powers that be and worship me and say that I'm in charge, I'll give you the kingdoms. If you will just join my system, if you'll just join in with this, this world of anxiety and fear and, and, and trying to take control of things, and just don't, don't, don't take the risky road of trusting that God will raise you from the dead. I'll just give them to you right now. And Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds got really excited. And when they saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who, came in, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As soon as people start saying, Hey, let's put Jesus at the head of an army, he's out. Because that's what people naturally go to. There ought to be a law, or we ought to change the people making the laws. We want this guy in charge, and, because if he can magically make bread, imagine what he can do in a battle. right? So we want him in charge. Jesus is out. He's not going to give in to that. John comes to Jesus and says, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. This is that same anxiety mentality. If we're, we're competitive, we need to be first. We need to be winning, right? So the, the disciples are afraid of, of rivals. They're in this competitive mindset. They're not trusting in God's grace. They're trusting in their own ability to win the competition to be the leaders. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We don't have to win. We don't have to beat rivals. If they're not against us, they're for us. That's a hard attitude to have. And it requires a lot of trust that God is the one who's going to sort things out. Right? It's really difficult to see other people doing better at what you're doing than yourself and to trust that that's okay. But if you trust in God's grace, then you know that no matter who's, who God is using, God is going to win. Right? His kingdom is going to be built, and that's what ultimately matters. 
That requires a lot of trust. So uh, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, and they come to a city of Samaritans, and the Samaritans won't let them stay there. They know that Jesus is Jewish, and that he's heading to Jerusalem, and they don't like Jews, so they say no. The disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I cannot get over that sentence, right? Like, James and John asking Jesus if he needs them to destroy this village for him. Because, again, they've got this mentality that we need to defeat the people who oppose us. And Jesus rebukes them. That is not how we do things. That is not the kind of kingdom we're building. And they went to another village. The Pharisees even try and provoke Jesus into this mentality because they don't, they don't believe that he'll be a successful Messiah, but they know if they can trick him to try, the Romans will crush him. So they sent Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came, and said, came to him and said, Teacher, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Because if Jesus, Jesus can say anything he wants, but once he starts undermining taxes, the Romans will jump on him, right? Do, do not challenge the, the money flow. That's the problem. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image, he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now this isn't Jesus saying, yeah, everything on earth is Caesar's and everything in heaven is God's. He's saying, yeah, Caesar puts his image on all this money because he thinks money is what's going to save him and money is where the power comes from. That's not what the kingdom of God is built on. So sure, give him the coins. Pay your taxes because we're bankrolled by God. It doesn't mean God's going to give you back every dime you spend in taxes, but it does mean that if you get taxed, taxes are not going to defeat the kingdom of God, Right? No one is going to tax the church out of existence because the, ch the church exists by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to worry about it. Go ahead and give Caesar what he wants. It's not going to help him. Finally, Jesus is a bit, he's a bit, he kind of simplifies things when he says that his disciples didn't fight to his arrest. Because one of them did. Right? Peter tried to cut off a guy, or he did cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And when he says it must happen this way, I don't think he's saying that there was just some prediction that said that it's going to happen this way, so in order to prove that the prediction was right, he has to follow through on those steps. I think what he's saying is that the Bible has always been saying that God operates this way, and Jesus has to continue to operate God's way to the very end. This is how the Bible says that God works. God has never been afraid in the past. Why should I be afraid now? God has never been desperate. He's never needed that kind of power before. Why should I fail at that now? I'm going to trust him to the very end. And so Jesus goes to the cross he never defends himself. He never fights back. And the most powerful empire in the world at the time perpetrates on him the most painful, humiliating form of execution they have. And this crucifixion was designed to humiliate, to crush. They used it on slaves and rebels because it was meant to dehumanize you. And it was meant to prove that no God could possibly be on your side because he would never allow you to go through that. That's what crucifixion did. It humiliated and degraded. It was so degrading that they were not allowed to do it to Roman citizens. Partly because a citizen of Rome always had the backing of the gods of Rome. So if a citizen of Rome could be crucified, that would call into question the gods of Rome. But if you're crucified, it shows that 
there is nobody in heaven looking, after, looking out for you. You have been totally destroyed and, and, and abandoned. They did everything they could to prove that Jesus was wrong. But at the cross, Jesus confronted human power and violence with nothing but trust in God's grace, and he won. He won. God vindicated him, and he proved that this is not just... I think the crucifixion and resurrection proves also that trusting in God's grace is not a health and wealth thing. I'm not saying that God will give you exactly what you want, because ultimately what we're saying is that God's grace extends for eternity. Because Jesus did not want to die on a cross, right? Like, he wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't excited for that. He didn't do that for fun. He did that because it was God's plan. That's why he prayed in Gethsemane. He said, please, you know, if there's another way, let's not do the cross thing. I will if I have to, but I'd like another way, right, if, there's, if there is one. But even though God's path required Jesus to die, to lose everything, even then, God's grace was sufficient to restore him to eternal life. And so ultimately, when we say we trust in God's grace, I'm not saying that God's grace will give you exactly what you want in this life. It's probably not going to, because you probably want something different from your life than God does. That's why we have to obey him and follow him. But what I'm saying, and what Scripture is saying, and what Jesus is proving, is that ultimately God's grace is enough. And that if we resist the temptation to try and use force and use power and try and make things go the way we think they should... God will take control. He's already in control, and God will make things work out the way he knows they should. Paul describes the crucifixion of Jesus this way, which is mind-blowing when you think of what it looked like to people who witnessed his crucifixion, but not his resurrection. He said, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is not what it looked like to people who witnessed the crucifixion, Right? That is not what it looked like because they thought they were seeing the triumph of the powers of the world. They thought they were seeing the final proof that Jesus didn't, was not sent by God, that God was not on his side. But what Jesus is saying, when you view that through the, crucif- through the resurrection, you see that, that is, Jesus took everything they could put, throw at him. The full might and power of the Roman Empire focused on one person in one moment. They poured everything they could into him. And it wasn't enough to overcome the grace of God. Among the many things that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to us and does for us, it proves that, that God's grace can be trusted no matter what to the very end. We can trust him with everything we have. We can trust him no matter what comes at us. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out the way you want it to work out, but it does mean that everything will work out according to his plan, and his plan is better than ours no matter what it costs us. Because it costs Jesus everything. But how much good came from that sacrifice? How much was changed by that sacrifice? And Jesus is not only saving us through his sacrifice, but he's also setting an example for us. Because if we are going to follow Jesus, then following Jesus means committing to live out the truth of God's grace. This is why we need to resist the temptation to act as if God's grace isn't sufficient. When we let our anxiety, it's, it's not a sin to feel anxious, right? I'm a parent. I'm going to feel anxious for the rest of my life, right? Because I love my children and I don't want any bad thing to ever happen to them ever. So there's going to be anxiousness. There's going to be anxiety. 
But when we let that control us, when we let that rule us, when we let that govern the way we treat other people, what we're saying is that we don't trust that God's grace is enough. But imagine the power that we can have in our community if we, as a people, are simply a non-anxious presence. You want to talk about what will get people asking you about Jesus? Be a person who's not terrified about the results of the next election. Be a person who's not terrified about the results of the next Supreme Court decision. Be a person, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't vote. What it means is you're not terrified as if human beings have the power to overwhelm God's grace. And imagine the power that we would have in our community if all the attempts that the world makes to get us excited and angry and fighting with others just don't land. What, what if we were impervious to all that clickbait on Facebook that makes, uh, tries to make us afraid and angry? What if we were impervious to all those ads that tell us that the world is crumbling because of those people and we need to do everything we can to crush them? instead of seeing them as children of God that need saving? What if we were just different that way? Human be- Christians are really good. I think the connection that I have so often failed to make in my life is how the grace of God, I think of it as simply a personal thing that just changes me and how I live. But if you look at the way Jesus talks about it, The grace of God is supposed to change not just me and how I feel about my relationship with God, but it's supposed to change the way I treat others. It's supposed to change the way our community operates. Notice what, notice, I'm going to read these two, this one passage. It's one passage, although your, your Bible may split it off into two, but it is one. Notice the connection here. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, therefore, because you have a good Father in heaven who is generous, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Here's the thing. Jesus was not the first person to say the golden rule. Multiple people in multiple cultures have said the golden rule before. What Jesus says that is different is he says, you have a generous father in heaven. Therefore, you can actually do the thing that everybody knows we should be doing in the first place. It's not the golden rule that's new. It's to say that you have a good, generous father in heaven. So what are you worried about? You can be generous with others because you have a good father you can trust. The grace of God is meant to create a kingdom. It's meant to create a different kind of order, a different kind of behavior in our cultures, in our culture, in our community. And so if we can go out into Turner or Salem or Almsville or wherever you live, and you can just live a life that shows that you trust in God's grace, you can't imagine the power that that will have, especially in a time that is as anxious and afraid as ours. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up as we prepare to sing our final song. I'm going to ask you, have you given yourself to the grace of God? If you have not given your life to Jesus, today is the best day to do that. Today is the best day to escape that life of fear, that life of stress, that life of feeling like there just won't be enough 
Because when we trust in God, when we trust in Jesus, we know that Jesus is enough and his grace, grace is sufficient for us. And I cannot express to you the difference that that makes in your life, but there are, this room is full of people who can testify to you the difference that that makes. So if you have not given your life to Jesus, today is the day to do that. If you're here, please come up and talk to me after the service, or you can come up during the final song. We can pray together. Or if you're online, you can uh, get in touch with the church or talk to a Christian that you know and trust. For those who have already given your life to Jesus, you may be realizing that even though you know God's grace, that you have stumbled like I have, like I constantly do, in actually trusting in God's grace. It's one thing to know it here. It's another thing to know it here. And it's another thing to know it here. And the goal that we have as Christians, I think a large part you could describe Christian growth as getting our knowledge of our trust in Jesus from here to here to here. And so if you have seen places that I've been preaching in your life where it has not been in your feet, the gospel has not been in your feet in the way you act and the way you treat others, today is the best day for you to give that part of yourself to God and to ask him to change you. And if you want to be a part of a community that is learning how to get the gospel from here to here, that's who we are. That's who we want to be as a group of believers who are seeking to walk like Jesus. And there are cards in the seatbacks in front of you if you want to get involved in a small group, or if you want to get involved in one of our dinner groups that we're starting this summer. Hopefully, if you signed up for a dinner group, you got a message from us this week. If you didn't, fill out another one. It's possible your card got mixed up. But you should have heard either a phone call from Jerry or a, uh, an email from me. Double check. Um, we're putting those dinner groups together just for people to get to know each other and have dinner together. If you want to be part of one of those groups, you can fill out that green card. And then finally, if you want to serve in some way, that's another part of getting the love of Jesus into our feet, is serving others. There's also a serve card that you can fill out that will give you some ways that you can give back to others in the church or in the community. So I'd encourage you now, as we stand to sing our final song, to ask yourself, what, is God, what next step is God calling you to take? How is he calling you to put the gospel in your feet and use this as a time to say yes to what he's asking you to do. Let's stand and sing.